Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 35th edition of Data Bytes, getting things done with data and government, supported by Meta. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening here at the IFG and online. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. Uh, yesterday was, of course, Halloween. I hope there was nothing that scared you too much. <laughs> Some people will do anything to get out of a bit of work and a public inquiry. Let's start with the usual housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record and we are being live streamed, obviously. On social media, it's hashtag IFGDataBytes and we are live tweeting from at IFGEvents. If you're here in the building, uh, the Wi-Fi is IFG Internet Hotspot, password institute123, all lowercase. And as ever, I'll be putting your questions to our speakers. If you're watching online, use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. Uh, if you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb35. If you're here at the IFG, you can, of course, raise your hand. But remember, you're up against the clock, so please keep your questions nice and short. <laughs> so we can squash in as many as possible. Why does the IFG organize DataBytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government to show everyone what better data can achieve in practice and to put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does DataBytes work? Well, you're going to see four presentations about data this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a DataByte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 35th Data Bytes. You can watch the previous 34 on the IFG website. So what's happened since we last met? <laughs> well, October was a big month for Big Vegan. First, then and now again, Home Secretary Suella Braverman resigned, or was resigned, bidding Soyanara from Liz Truss's government following a tempe tantrum. If you had any desire for tofu puns, I'm sure you've been cured of it now. But let us, let us turn to the biggest story of the month. Former Prime Minister Liz Truss being outlasted by a lettuce and stepping down as Britain's shortest serving Prime Minister. In recent days, Braverman has also embraced the salad theme, with her department leaking like a colander. But if we move from colander to calendar, we can see Liz Truss's 50 days in office. I say 50. Actually, we have the days of national mourning following the death of the Queen. Then the Commons was in recess for party conference season. It may not have felt like it, but there were some weekends in there as well. So I think Liz Truss was PM on only 16 parliamentary sitting days that weren't taken up with royal tributes. Now, her premiership unravelled on Wednesday, the 19th of October. First, Braverman resigned, meaning Truss at least made it onto our ministerial resignations chart. Then a Labour opposition day turned into a fracking nightmare for Liz Truss. One resignation became three as the chief whip and deputy chief whip resigned, then unresigned in the early hours of Thursday morning, only for the PM herself to quit a few hours later, the shortest serving prime minister in British history. Now, 50 days is not, of course, very long. In fact, it's only a couple of days longer than this year's Databyte summer break. <laughs> it's shorter than the leadership contest which Liz Truss won. 
It's shorter than Sam Allardyce's ill-fated reign as England men's football manager and Ed Ball's stint on Strictly. It's a few days short of any number one single that topped the charts for exactly eight weeks. There have only been a few of those, but they do include It's Now or Never by Elvis Presley, Magic Moments by Perry Como, and the Shakespeare's sister hit, Stay. Now, during the Tory leadership contest, Liz Truss said she was inspired by Leeds United's legendary manager, Don Reavy, who was at the club for 13 years. Instead, she only narrowly beat Brian Clough's notorious 44-day reign at the Damned United, which is also the same number of days that David Blaine stayed in that box. They nonetheless outlasted Suella Braverman in her rapid first stint at the Home Office and Kwasi Kwarteng's tenure as Chancellor. They were both slightly longer than the shorter-serving US President, William Henry Harrison, and the forthcoming FIFA Men's Football World Cup. Both of those lasted longer than Truss and Kwarteng's mini-budget, itself surviving for a few more days than Diane James as UKIP leader in 2016. That was still slightly longer than the standard international unit of political tenure, the Scaramucci, which is longer than Australia's shorter-serving PM and Suella Braverman's second stint at the Home Office so far. <laughs> That's a day longer than it would take to listen to the 14 Nadine Doris works on Audible, which ties with Grant Shapp's tenure at the Home Office, which is just a day longer than binging all episodes of The West Wing, which is more than double the length of Michelle Donnellan's time as Education Secretary earlier this year. So we move from our shortest serving Prime Minister to one of our shortest. <laughs> Rishi Sunak becomes our third Prime Minister inside a year. That's not happened inside a calendar year since 1924, a Labour ram sandwich between two slices of Stanley Baldwin. Now, it's worth contrasting the election result that led to that, the closest three-party result in British political history, with the one that led to more recent events, Boris Johnson somehow <coughs> squandering a working majority of more than 80. So that's three within a calendar year. Now, as you hopefully know by now, we like a bit of data analysis here at the IFG. So I looked at the number of prime ministers within any 12-month period since 1720. You can see just how unusual the last few months have been. We've not had three PMs in a 12-month period since 1963, most of those earlier moments coinciding with major government blunders, economic crisis, and constitutional upheaval. Imagine. <laughs> Now, prime ministerial, prime ministerial upheaval can cause major disruption across government. This chart shows the number of cabinet appointments per calendar year since 1979, highest in general election years and with new prime ministers coming in, until 2022 blew everything else out of the water. We could organise an 11-a-side football match between ministers for the Cabinet Office and DCMS Secretaries of State since 2010. Cabinet Office even have a sub. MOJ and DFE are into double figures, and DWP are on nine since the start of 2016. That's a lot of disruption, something that is hard to swallow. A problem Matt Hancock is also about to encounter. <laughs> Turning to tonight's event which is themed around resilience and emerging risks. Um, our first speaker is Carlos Awamada from the Data for Good team at tonight's sponsor, Meta, on Meta's support for crisis response and policymaking through innovative data-based tools. Then we'll hear virtually from Niovi Karathotharu from the Office for National Statistics Data Science Campus on understanding how access to services vary across communities in the UK. After her, we're back in the building for Dr. Alan Roberts from the Cabinet Office on blending data analysis with expert judgment to build a country stability index. 
And joining us virtually, our final speaker this evening will be Donna Lindsay from Ordnance Survey on understanding how our skills in location data can help solve some of the key data barriers in green finance, sustainability and supply chains. We'll be back on Wednesday the 7th of December for our final data bites of 2022. A huge thank you to Meta for supporting tonight's event. As regular attendees will know, we need sponsors to keep data bites going. So if you'd like to follow in Meta's virtuous footsteps, get in touch with my colleague Ritesh. And if you're in government and would like to present or know someone who should, please get in touch with me. That's more than enough from me. I'm now going to hand over to Carlos. Thank you very much, Gavin. Uh, amazing presentation. And uh, thank you, everybody, for being here tonight. My name is Carlos Ahumada, and I'm Public Policy Manager in Data Frequent at Meta. And tonight, I'll be sharing you, with you a little bit about the work that we do and who we are. So it's first important to acknowledge that during the last years, humanity has had faced very complex issues. The first uh, hand, we climate change effects have arrived, and here we see a chart on the sea level increases in coastal cities around the world. A pandemic made us rethink the way we live. We see the cumulative confirmed COVID cases for selected countries here in the millions. And poverty around the world is still a big problem. We have more than 600 million people living in poverty, and we do not yet know how we're gonna solve that. And the question is exactly how we're going to solve that. And there is no one formula, there is no one recipe, but we know at least some of the components. The first one that I identify is leadership. We need effective leadership inside organizations. We also need political commitment and civic engagement to decide which, which topics we're going to be addressing. We also need money and resources to apply policy and programs to solve these issues. And we also need data. And we all know uh, the benefits of using data, right? With data, we're more able to identify the complexity of the issues we're working with, but we're also more able to see the opportunities, right? The question is sometimes we don't know um, with which data we need to work with, where we can get the data. Um, when, when we're working in government agencies, sometimes the amount of data that we have is not enough. It's very costly. So we need to join forces, private sector, public sector, academia, researchers, think tanks, to share the visibility that we have in certain topics and areas. And that's exactly what we do at Data for Good at Meta. What we do is we empower partners, government agencies, international organizations, researchers, academics, um, with privacy-preserving data that strengthens communities and advances social issues. You're seeing here one of the world's most accurate population density map, and we created it at Data for Good at Meta. This population density map has an accuracy of 30 square meters and breakdowns by age and gender. And the way we built it is we bought commercially available satellite imagery of all the world. We divided the commercially available satellite imagery in areas of 30 square meters. Then we trained a computer vision algorithm to identify structures in the ground. And once we had identified those structures, we made a partnership with Columbia University who took the latest available national census data in each country in the world, and we distributed those estimations for 2020 in the structures that we identified on the ground. Each of the dots that you see here represents an area of 30 square meters. The more orange it is, the more population that is living here, and the more yellow or the paler the color it is, the less uh, population living in those areas. Here you see an image for the population of Accra in Ghana, 
here in the circle blue. And here you see how this population density map has been used by our partner, um, Water Data Point Exchange. This is an initiative that aims to uh, map the, the functional water points in the territory and put them in relation to the population density to see how many um, people these functional water points can serve. Uh, our population density map is reflected here. The more purple an area is, the more concentration of people who identify in the territory. And the gray areas are the areas where less people live. Another example of the utilization of this population density map, the International Medical Corps has used uh, this map to deploy health facilities after disaster or conflict for around 1.7 million people across Central African Republic, India, Libya, Nigeria, and Pakistan. And talking about Pakistan, uh, recently in September, uh, the country suffered one of the worst uh, floatings in many years. Um, 10 million children were in need of uh, support and help. Almost 2,000 people died. And at Data for Good at Meta, what we do is empower our partners to, um, to support their crisis response plans, right? Here you see a map that developed by Crisis Ready. Crisis Ready is a nonprofit, uh, an international organization working to support um, communities at risk after a natural disaster or conflict. Here, what Crisis Ready did was map the concentration of people after the floatings to see the evacuation patterns. And you can see why this is very relevant, right? Because if we want to deliver aid, if we want to plan shelters, this kind of data is very important, and we need it in real time. And we're able to do that and provide that kind of data in a privacy-preserving way. And these uh, devastating effects and natural disasters have been increasing due to climate change, right? Everything has to do with climate change. And uh, we're very committed to understand better this phenomena and try to provide and bring to the table what we're seeing. Every year in collaboration with the Yale program on climate change communication, we develop one of the largest surveys on climate change and sustainability around the world. In the 2022 edition, we sampled around 200 countries and territories to get a perspective on the knowledge, behaviors, and attitudes of people on climate change and sustainability topics. It's a unique survey, and uh, we're promoting it and uh, kind of spreading the word in the context of COP27 that is going to happen in the next uh, week. Some of the questions that we ask for people is if they think that reducing climate change will provide economic benefits or not, and we group the answers by region. We see, interestingly, that in the UK, people think that it will improve economic growth and provide new jobs, or at least it will not have effect on economic growth or jobs, um, ranking in the first place in the whole Europe. Our climate change uh, perception survey has used by Social Progress Imperative, an international nonprofit organization, to develop the Climate Perception Index. And what they're trying to do is ranking countries in terms of the citizens' awareness, perception of risk, commitment to action. And these kind of efforts are very important to inform policies. So in a nutshell, that's who we are, Data for Good at Meta. We have around uh, 20 tools. So we build maps, maps as I show you in population density, mobility, movement, relative wealth, social connections. We also run surveys, some of the most um, large or the largest surveys around the world. And we also provide insights to nonprofit organizations to craft better digital communication campaigns. 
Today we have more than 600 partners working in around 80 countries in key topics such as climate change, mobility, crisis response, economic development, infrastructure, and others. And we will be very happy to engage more with government agencies to continue working with international organizations to continue supporting their crisis response plans and proactive policy making. Thank you very much. I'll come to the audience for questions uh, in the room in a moment. Uh, do tell us who you are um, if you can. Remember, we are on the record. Do keep it short and do wait for the microphone to come to you. Uh, if you're watching us online, uh, remember that you can submit questions using Slido, which you're probably already on. But if you're not, it's bit.ly slash slidodb35. So let's go to the room for the first questions. I've got one there, and I'll come to you next. James Kidner from Rebellion Defence. Um, fascinating presentation, Carlos, and thank you for that. Um, you started with a figure that troubled me slightly, because my question is about the fuzziness of data. And you said that there were 652,481,000, I've forgotten the exact figure, but you were quite precise on it, people living in absolute poverty in the world. And we sort of all know that that's nonsense, because it's a fuzzy figure, and it's how you measure it. And that's really my question. How do you allow for the sort of parameters of your data to accommodate the, the fact that most of us live in a kind of conundrum rather than an actuality? Um, yeah, thank you very much for, for your question. So um, the measurement of poverty indeed has many complications, right? Because there are many ways to measure it. Uh, there are many political implications. Different organizations measure poverty in different ways, and that's uh, kind of the fuzziness. My purpose was just like to give a rough estimation on the people living in poverty, more than 600 million people around the world based on the World Bank data. And um, you're right, we're in a world that constantly is moving, that is very fussy, um, but at least we have to make our best efforts to model it, right? Um, we have human behavior, we have unpredictedness, um, and that's what we're trying to do here. Uh, the population density maps, for example, that we have, are based on the latest available national census data in each country in the world, and population estimates that Columbia University made up to 2020. It's not gonna be perfect. It's not gonna be reflecting the actual population. Um, our computer vision algorithm is based on computer vision, right, and satellite imagery. We might get some false positives in terms of the structures that we identified in the ground. But still, we're trying to improve it, and we're going to be launching a 1.5 version that includes radar systems to be more precise on the identification of structures. So it's kind of these efforts on always trying to constantly be improving and understanding that we're not, never going to be perfect, even when we're talking about data, but making our best effort to model the world in, in which we live in. Excellent. Thank you. We had a question down here at the front as well. Thanks very much, Swayling Harris from Luminate. Um, my question, Carlos, was about climate change. I couldn't agree with you more about how pressing an issue it is. I um, was curious about um, what measures Facebook is doing to uh, use the data that Facebook holds to consider the spread of climate change, dis and misinformation on the platform. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for that question. So at Data for Good at Meta, uh, we don't uh, re really work on that space. Uh, we have a tool that measures, for example, the volume of articles 
that people post and reshare about climate change and sustainability and has been used, for example, by researchers and academics to understand the resilience of the topic. There's a very interesting graph of the amount of posts that people um, post on, on about climate change compared to the posts on COVID-19. So as COVID-19 cases were increasing, the posts on climate change were decreasing, right? Um, so this kind of analysis is very important to analyze the narrative and the resilience of certain topics. Of course, the company has many other initiatives when it comes to climate change and sustainability. Uh, we are um, supporting many organizations in terms of the communication. Uh, we're constantly supporting nonprofit organizations, international organizations on crafting better digital communication campaigns. We support them with ad credits. We do a lot of things on climate change and uh, sustainability. And it's one of the main focuses of the company in this year and in the years to come, I guess. Great, thank you. Um, I'm gonna go online for the next question. Uh, so uh, this is from Jeremy. Good evening to you, Jeremy. How does Meta remain politically neutral in cases like the Ukraine war? So it's a, it's a very interesting question, and um, I will have to, to, to keep on, on the track that I'm, that I'm managing in terms of uh, data for good. And uh, what I can say is that we're supporting with what we are, the signals that we're receiving, right? So for example, um, the social con we build this tool that is Social Connectedness Index, that it measures how interconnected are two geographical areas between them, and has been used by researchers and academics to kind of predict movement and where people are gonna be moving and displacing after war um, or conflict, right? So this is one kind of the questions that um, we're trying to, to solve and answer from the data for good side, also providing information on population density, just as I mentioned, to kind of assess and um, make better a crisis response plans. Great, thank you. Uh, let's come back into the room for the next question. Do we have any more questions in the room? We've got one there. Hi, thank you. That was a really great presentation. Um, I suppose following on from that question that you just had, is do, do you have, a, I guess, a framework or a way that you look at the ethics of the partners that you work with or the different analysis that you do? I'm sorry, it's uh, Rhiannon from mm -hmm. PwC. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, so it's important to mention that the majority of the tools that we have are publicly available. Uh, they are privacy-preserving, free to use, publicly available. Um, and before we publish them, we make an assessment, right, in terms of the privacy implications. We make sure that they comply with privacy legislation and regulation. And we also make an assessment of human rights and the impact that these tools can have. So um, we feel confident about making them public. And we have a small set of tools that are control access. They are also free to use. They are also privacy preserving. Um, the difference is that we require a data lines agreement with them because they are more granular in, the, in, in their scope, uh, time, or spatial. And uh, we make them control access because we want to make sure that people and organizations use them with the purpose with which they were created, that is positive social impact. So every time a partner wants to work with us, we start conversations with them, very open conversations about their policy projects, the research they are doing, and um, we grant them access if we think that the project they're doing has a positive social impact. Uh, we have more than 600 uh, partners working in 80 countries, and we're very happy to be supporting organizations, big organizations, academics, uh, Red Cross, international organizations, uh, big institutions, and we're very happy with the work that these partners have done. Great, I'm gonna go online for the next question. This is from Jonathan, good evening to you. 
Analysis draws attention to particular issues. How do you decide which issues to illuminate? Yeah, that's a very good question. And um, we, we have limited bandwidth, right, as every, every company, as every program. So we try to do our best and we try to build the tools that we think that are going to have the most positive impact, right? Population density, for example, is a very, it's just, and can be used for many topics, right? So we try to cover as many topics as possible. In terms of surveys, for example, we selected climate change, we, se we have surveys on gender equality, we have surveys on the global state of small businesses to measure the state of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And the reason why we pick these topics is because there are topics that are important for every country or most of the countries around the world, right? So we try to remain impartial in that sense and trying to cover as many um, topics as possible and um, that are important to as many countries as possible. Fantastic. Do we have a one sentence question from anyone in the audience? <laughs> squeeze one in very, very quickly, if anyone wants to. Yeah. <laughs> um, Carla Atkins, is there one example of where that data has influenced public policy? Yes. Um, so in one sentence, for example, um, the Sustainable Energy for All organization has collaborated right now with the Ministry of Power in Nigeria to develop a tool um, that measures electricity and energy use. And they use the population density map as a data layer, again, to make estimations on energy use and the efficiency of the system. So that's a very initial uh, <laughs> topic. And a great note on which to end. Carlos, thank you very much thank indeed. You. Uh, and apologies to those of you online whose questions we didn't get round to as well. Lots of really interesting ones coming in. Um, we're going to go online now for our next speaker, and that is Niovi. Will hopefully appear any moment now, or whose slides will appear any moment now. Yeah, uh, the slides. Hello, we can hear you. Hello, you can hear me. Just a sec with the slides. Can you see the slides? <coughs> we can indeed. So. Yep, I'm starting then. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> so good afternoon, everyone. I, I'm Nyovi Karathodoru, and I work as a senior data scientist at ONS's Data Science Campus, and more specifically at the Leveling Up Squad. So the Leveling Up Squad works with various stakeholders, such as DLAC, the Department of uh, Leveling Up um, Housing and Communities, as well as other government departments and uh, local authorities, on themes um, having to do with levelling up local areas, as you can imagine. And one of the themes that we've been working on recently is transport and, and access to services. And this is the work that I'm going to talk to you about today. Um, just a note that it's not uh, solely my work, it's work from the whole of the squad, the levelling up squad, and I'm just here um, just to represent the team. So the aim of a project uh, we're working on at the moment is to understand how access to opportunities differs across communities in the UK. So we want to produce a set of statistics that shows how far people can travel using public transport from the home location for the entire UK. So say here from the whole location, but what I mean by that is we're going to uh, do the same analysis for all output areas in England and Wales and equivalently for data zones in Scotland and small areas in Northern Ireland. And I have here the entire UK in bold 
because this is something that's very important to us, um, that we have uh, consistent statistics for all four nations um, of the UK. Um, it, it's a part of a wider program uh, of uh, ONS to produce statistics for all four nations, and it's being promoted by the national statistician, the head of the ONS. Um, and the work is also of interest to DILAC, um, and we've already done some work uh, for them uh, specifically, well, similar but specific areas, and I'm going to talk about these in a minute. Um, but first, I'll talk about dating approach very briefly. So we're using the Opportunity Planner. It's an uh, open access software project uh, that can be used to model journeys you, well, in, by inputting timetable data. And we have built a pipeline that compiles and formats timetable and stop and station location data and calculates visible travel area, how far basically people can travel uh, for any for an area that is defined by the user. So data to do this uh, is available for all four nations, but they are in different formats uh, and they come from different sources. So that's why our pipeline brings everything uh, together, processes the data and um, uh, puts them in a form suitable for the Open Trip Planner. So I'll move on and present an example of the work that we've already done um, for DILAC, who were doing a deep dive uh, in the Grimsby area and one of the, um, the themes that we're interested to understand in how, how travel accessibility uh, differs across the area. So we calculate isochrones, basically how far people uh, can travel based on the um, approach I said before. Uh, using, so uh, for the different wards of Winsby, there are about 12, I think. And the visual I have, the map that I have here on the right, is how far people can travel, well, the red area, sorry, is how far people can travel from Immingham Ward, centre of Immingham Ward, which is in the, uh, well, kind of northeast of the centre of Grimsby. And this is how far they can travel by bus in two hours on a weekday at 8 a.m. in the morning. And um, you, this is, if you can see the same area for the same time, well, exactly every parameter the same, but people starting from Southward, which is near Grimsby City Centre, you can see that this area is much, much larger and people can reach Lincoln, people can reach Hull. So there's a very uh, different uh, accessibility uh, in different areas of Grimsby. Uh, a similar type of work along the same lines we did for um, North of Town Combined Authority. So the approach is to help them understand how potential on-one travel uh, to and from the new stations of the Northumberland Line uh, will be. So the well, uh, Northumberland Line will be reopened to passenger services as planned and they want to see using the existing bus timetable uh, how far people can travel uh, from uh, station locations by bus and how an estimate of how many jobs they can reach. And the visual shows um, how far people can travel from Ashington stations different colours, so it's different cut-off times, 15, 30, 35, uh, sorry, 45 and an hour uh, travel from the stations, and this analysis will be producible for other stations as well. So uh, we've seen these visuals, and like the visuals as shown for Grimsby, uh, wards are, we want to do, well, we're in the process of doing the same for all output areas uh, in the England and Wales, data zones in Scotland and small areas in Northern Ireland. And we're hoping in the next few months 
to release a data set of shapers for um, all output areas and some summary statistics, uh, well, mainly at the surface area and square kilometres of these um, areas. Uh, but hopefully before Christmas, but I can't guarantee that, but it will be within the next few months. Early next year, we'll, we'll release the open source code and a Docker image to ensure researchers can reproduce the analysis. And we are aware that this kind of products we can release are more accessible to researchers and analysts, people that do have um, existing knowledge of using code and analyzing. Uh, we are currently exploring how we can make this uh, more accessible to the public, um, possibly using an interactive tool, but uh, well, uh, it's currently under scope. We don't have any set plans yet. Uh, this is the expected output, and I'm going to talk a bit about potential next steps. We talk here about, you know, working in what area people can access using public transport, but it does make a difference what kind of services, what they can access within this area. Uh, so the next step we're sp scoping at the moment would be um, calculating accessibility to services, you know, uh, using the the, the, uh, the shape for the areas as we have to find out how many services, different services, be it employment, be it education, we're still scoping, can be reached. Um, other factors that are important uh, and uh, we're scoping at the moment is reliability of public transport. Uh, you may have good, well, you have, you know, in theory, something may be accessible by public transport. If the public transport is not reliable, it makes a difference. Then cost, looking at how far you can travel within a specific budget. And there's other factors, reproducing the analysis potentially for different times of the day. We're currently looking at rush hour uh, and the quality of services, number of services, etc. And uh, that's it. I think I made it on time. So I'm open to questions. I hope I didn't rush. So I stop sharing, right? That's great. Thank you very much, Niovi. So... So a reminder while uh, Niovi's slides disappear and uh, we get to see her on the screen that if you're watching us online, you can use the Slido to submit questions. That's bit.ly slash Slido DB35 if you're not there already. Hello, Niovi. We can see you. Excellent. Um, so oh, hello. Online for the first question this time around. This is uh, from Jeremy again, um, who says accessibility to public transport depends on how mobile people are, how far they can walk or cycle to a bus stop. Please, can you tell us about any assumptions you made about this in your work? Um, thank you, Jeremy, for the question. Uh, assumptions. There are some assumptions on how far people can travel. Uh, we know there's a maximum walkable distance and there's uh, open gym planner you input as well uh, how averse people are to walking because obviously there's choices between routes uh, but just to say that this one we haven't explored using different parameters we're going to present you know this current work does uh, will be for specific you know for one uh, say well for one parameter specific walking distance and specific uh, so we're not uh, we, we're not going to do different isochrons for different walking abilities within this work I am afraid I can't tell you what specific parameters we've used because I didn't work at that part of the project but if it's support when I can get back to you talk with my colleagues who dealt with that excellent thank you does that make sense sorry I just uh, mumbled here a bit no, it did. Thank uh, you. It, it is a very good point, but we didn't. We, well, yeah, it, 
we've made an assumption that everyone have the same walking ability across the UK, basically. It's for, it's for the average walking ability, the average mobility. It, it doesn't explore that aspect, but it, it, it is a good point. Thank you. Great, thank you. Um, I'll come to the room for the next question. Hands up if you would like to put a question to Niovi. Sorry, it's Rhiannon again. Um, I was just wondering, do you have plans? I know it's always easy when we look, you look at research that there's a thing, oh, have you, have you tried that? I'm really interested to understand if you've looked at or will be looking at affordability in terms of those maps, because obviously if you've got to take six bus journeys, that could be very different to one bus journey or walking. So you mean affordability in terms of cost or in terms of transfers in terms of cost in terms of cost yes we are uh so the first the first steps we're not taking into account we are aware and it is something we may be scoping for the future but what we're going to release now is not going to include it uh there's a researcher called Frederico Botta in the University of Exeter I think he has started looking at that as well um it is a bit more complicated to do than uh, tribes than um, simple travel time because first different this first structures are a bit more complicated and how you plan a journey kind of you know, for rail for example and when you buy the ticket and all this it can affect how much the 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 journey costs so it is something more complicated we may look at it in the future but not yet. Thank you. Uh, I'll go online again for the next one. Uh, again, reminder, you can use Slido if you're watching us online. Uh, this is from Tom King. Good evening to you. How well aligned are the maps with different policy scenarios that combined authorities are deciding between? So essentially, can local authorities make use of these maps easily? Uh, or, okay. So, uh, well, currently we are in contact and we work with some local authorities, as I said, for the north of Tyne, and we can't do work for them. The data we're going to produce, the first, what I said, that will be produced before, well, in, within the next few months, you would need, well, it'll be shape fast and you need someone who can analyse them, who can code, so it won't be accessible to the public of people who don't have a kind of analytical background. So we will be looking in the future if we can create some kind of interactive tool that would be more easily, easily used by the public or by local authorities themselves who don't have the, the expertise to use the, the, the shapefiles we're producing. But I have to say, uh, while we're still scoping, there are some challenges to doing that, uh, having to do one of the scale, the, the, how big actually <laughs> the, site, uh, the files that are produced are. So um, we haven't actually reached a solution yet. Great, thank you. Um, I'll come back to the room for the next question. We've got one there, and I'll come to you at the back next. So if we come down there first, yeah. Thank you. Matthew Burton from the House of Commons Library. Rather than uh, finding timings from point to point, would it be possible to use this uh, modelling to give a overall sort of score of connectivity for a particular place in terms of access to public transport? Because I know that in the library, this is something that would be very useful for answering inquiries from members of parliament they often want to know about the connectivity of certain places across their constituency uh, 
the in terms of um, connectivity, the statistics we're going to produce is the the size of surface area of the well the, the the feasible area you can reach by public transport. Uh, we may produce bond to do access to services. We would produce scores for that accessibility scores to services, which I think will be more useful. Is that does that answer the question, or do you have a follow up? That's great, thank you. Um, we'll go to the other question in the room next as well. Hello, Anna Potter from Portsmouth City Council here. Um, very interested to hear about the data and be keen to sort of see how this data could be accessed by local authorities um, within our local authority specifically as well. Um, just curious as to whether you have plans to overlap this data with access to healthcare in any way, because we know that people who they often struggle to actually, you know, like make their way to public acts, you know, to like doctors and things like that. So, sorry, I'll let you answer. So, uh, well, I say, I think I say it all the time. So the first part of the project, the phase one, what we're currently doing is about the feasible area. And we're currently scoping what we can do about access to services and healthcare is one of the, the areas we'll be considering. Uh, but... We're currently scoping it, so I can't guarantee we'll do it, but we may do it. Uh, we're currently looking at current potential sources um, to get the data. Uh, it could be government departments, API, and for healthcare, it could be that, or maybe uh, CQC as well, I think, have the data. We're looking at um, OpenStreetMap and at um, Ordnance Survey data, but it's still in the scoping phase, so I can't promise you, but it is something we're considering. Great, thanks. This this one from Jonathan online follows on quite nicely from that, which is, is there interest in inverting the logic, for example, to find out how many people could access a new employment site within a certain time? Um, so, uh, it's in the pipeline. Well, what we produce exactly will not, uh, we will not uh, be able will not do it, but it can't be done with the open to planner. So if we tweaked a bit the code and everything, we could do it, but what we're producing is not exactly uh, that, but it could be doable if someone asks us to do it. Um, and can I add something the previous question very cheekily, uh, that we are very happy generally to work with local authorities as well. So if they want to contact us and discuss how they can use the data and the work, we'd be very happy to talk to them. Uh, Sorry, a bit late, very cheeky. But. That, that's a fantastic offer to, to end on as well. So, Nyevi, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for having me. And again, apologies to those of you online with some brilliant questions that we didn't have time for. Um, we're back in the room for our next speaker, and that is Alan. Great, thanks very much. Uh, I think I've got some slides I'm waiting to come up, but uh, hi everyone, good to uh, see you all. Um, yeah, really fascinating uh, talks from, uh, from Meta and uh, ONS there. Um, sorry, I'm looking at the, at the back, is there? I don't think we've got any slides. Oh, okay, I sent them over in advance. Okay, have to ad-lib on this a little bit then. Um, right. <clears throat> So, um, so essentially, what I was going to be talking about uh, is a stability index um, that uh, the cabinet office produces, um, and uh, you know why would we want to produce a stability index? Um, it's essentially something that goes around uh, looking at all the countries in the world 
and looking over the next 12 months and saying, you know, which countries are kind of looking most kind of at risk of instability. Um, and when you talk about instability, you're looking at things like um, armed conflict, uh, looking at things like uh, uh, political upheaval or social unrest. There's lots of ways that uh, instability could basically manifest. Um, the reason that we'd want to be looking at instability globally is in order to essentially have a kind of humanitarian response. So you're talking about things like uh, uh, allocating resources, um, allocating funding, uh, allocating people as well to deploy to emergencies when they happen. So if a kind of particular state maybe the next 12 months is looking like it might be a little wobbly, then you can end up preparing for a humanitarian response to help out with uh, different environmental or political or security or societal uh, issues that might occur. Um, so, uh, so, so I'm trying to somewhat remember my slides to, uh, to know exactly what order to take this in. Um, so the way that we do that, uh, of course, relies a lot on data, right? So there's kind of a two-stage process that we follow. Um, there's a quantitative stage, and then there's a qualitative stage. Uh, so the quantitative stage is basically amassing a load of data sets uh, from all sorts of like international institutions, uh, also tech companies as well. So you're looking at things like the World Bank and the UN, but also at, uh, data aggregators like ACLED or like Meta, um, and ingesting a lot of this data, crunching a whole load of numbers, and then producing kind of an initial instability ranking uh, for each individual country. Um, so the, uh, that kind of first stage is done across these different dimensions of looking at like security, society, environment, economy, health, lots of different examples of the kind of dimensions we try to do this across. Um, but uh, the thing is, looking across all those kind of dimensions and trying to do an all things considered assessment um, basically means that you, uh, uh, you kind of need to rely on expert judgment as well. So, uh, so someone like me, sorry, I'm just seeing, because I can actually see, here we go. The slides are now uh, being uploaded, and I'm going to actually remember a little bit of what I'm meant to be talking about. Uh, could you go back to the start of the, okay, all right, yeah. If that's okay, yeah, thanks very much. I'm, I'm conscious I'm bleeding that, wait, minutes here. I think we can get seconds. a few seconds back, I think that's all right. Okay. Here we go. And you've got the clicker there. For you. And the clicker as well. Where wow. the tech uh, data talk is finally working. Um, okay. So, so as I was saying, okay, country stability index. That's my name, Dr. Alan Roberts. Uh, got a nice little uh, kind of visual of some dominoes here because uh, one of the things that happens with instability is a kind of spillover effect. So, if a particular country, say Myanmar, is kind of experiencing instability event, that's not just a problem for Myanmar, but you can have these kind of effects, migration, conflict, spillover effects to the region, and kind of have destabilizing effects for, for South Asia, say. Okay, um, so uh, as I was saying, uh, we, we, uh, we kind of do this first stage of kind of data crunching on, on instability. So, we do it across these different dimensions political, security, societal, economic, natural hazards, and health, right? These kind of very pretty colored lines here are each representing a different country. So you've got that blue line representing a country that scores very highly across all these dimensions. Uh, and, uh, and then you've got this yellow country uh, scoring much lower across dimensions, specifically on security. But, so we kind of take a lot of data and give countries scores uh, on these different dimensions. On the right-hand side here, I've got this matrix. And this is a, a kind of matrix that's based on just open source academic literature on uh, uh, political instability and how to measure instability. 
We've got up the uh, y-axis pressure going from very low to very high. And then along the x-axis, we've got resilience. So we're flipped axis going from very high to very low. So you can essentially cluster your countries, your most unstable countries in the top right-hand corner there uh, with very low resilience and very high pressure. Essentially, instability risk is kind of defined by the greater imbalance between a country's pressure uh, that is the kind of strains placed on, uh, placed on a country and a country's resi resilience. That is its kind of ability to cope with those strains. Um, so that's the kind of conceptual model we use to, to look at instability. And if we take that, uh, that matrix and then populate it with data points, it looks something like this. So this is, um, this is essentially our, our matrix populated with data points, and those data points are different countries. Got these different kind of risk categories, failed or failing state, high, substantial, moderate, low risk states. And we've got our most unstable countries in the top right hand corner with very low resilience and very high pressure. Um, so as I was saying, we kind of do these, these data rankings, but I myself am just like a kind of naive number cruncher. I've got no expertise really across any geographical remit or anything. So we very much go out and do this kind of second qualitative stage of talking to actual experts with genuine subject matter expertise. Uh, kind of testing where these countries are. So we're doing to people in government, academia, industry, international partners, basically anyone uh, of expertise who's willing to talk to us. Um, so I'll talk a bit about trends as well, because in addition to doing some of these rankings, we then uh, pull out some trends that are going to be affecting instability over the next 12 months. Um, so uh, this, is, uh, this graph is showing global food prices and sea oil prices going right back to 1990 and kind of baselining it at the 100 mark from uh, 2014 to 2016. And we can see the kind of food price index in blue, seal price index in orange, and we can see the kind of volatility bouncing up and down of food and cereal price along with different global events. So global food price rise around 2008, real kind of spike in food prices, Arab Spring as well also sees a spike in food prices. And then we can see right coming up to present day recently, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and food prices really spiking. And that was kind of the UN uh, food uh, data at the start of the year. Since the data has somewhat plateaued, luckily, um, but you know we can see even uh, recently, kind of Black uh, Sea grain deal is, can can still be going back on, and, and Russia can not necessarily allow for grain to be exported uh, out of Ukraine. Um, and so we are potentially going to continue seeing this kind of effect uh, of uh, food prices having effect on stability. It's been a long kind of established connection between. Uh, uh, kind of rising commodities and food prices uh, and instability events, especially at the kind of point of inflection. Um, so we're, say, we're seeing these kind of rises from energy and food shortages, expecting probably going to be uh, uh, remaining above kind of pre-pandemic levels at least the end of 2023, and probably next year going to see more countries at like high or failed state kind of status. Another kind of trend that's been going on for a long time is uh, climate change, of course, right? And this is something that, is, uh, that we really look to international partners to help measure and international bodies to help provide data on. Um, so these kind of most likely kind of climate pressures that you get uh, that affect countries' instability are things like cross-border migration, humanitarian crises, and also geopolitical tensions over climate action as well. Uh, so different countries kind of uh, either doing what they said or, or not in terms of fulfilling climate obligations. Um, but you can see here this... Uh, this uh, index provided by Notre Dame uh, uh, and their kind of country uh, pressure in terms of climate and resilience in terms of climate. You can see those two things don't necessarily match and it's not necessarily a good thing if you have matching colours because being kind of low climate pressure and low resilience is going to 
result in a high climate vulnerability. I see the time's running out as well, so I'll quickly skip on to, uh, to health as well and just kind of talk about some of the data inputs that we were using during the COVID-19 pandemic as well. Um, so we've seen the pandemic really kind of amplify some of those underlying causes of instability. Um, and uh, actually data providers like Meta have been really useful during the pandemic when we were trying to uh, measure people's behavior and responses to, um, to like lockdown situations. Because of course you can uh, have reported behavior and observed behavior. So both these kind of data aggregators were really good for going uh, kind of surveys, saying what people, uh, showing what people were saying they, they were doing, but then also having kind of anonymized smartphone data that shows where people are traveling and how much people are moving about their kind of observed behavior as well. So yeah, a little bit of a, a kind of plug there for our, uh, our partners at Meta and how useful some of that data was during the pandemic. Um, but yeah, I'll take questions uh, after I'm aware I'm well out of time. Thanks. Thank you very much, Alan. I'll come to the room second. Um, again, if you're watching us online, uh, bit.ly slash slidodb35, if you're not already on Slido. Lots of you already are, because the first question that came in from Anonymous was, how do we score over the last two months? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, so the UK does uh, quite happily still score in the kind of long tail of low-risk countries, at least at present. Um, of course, we have much uh, finer gradations of instability risk going upwards. Uh, because, of course, you're much more uh, worried about kind of passing between your higher instability countries than distinguishing your Denmarks from your Swedens and how much instability is going there. Uh, so the UK is still very comfortably low risk, uh, but it would be interesting to see any more timely data on how that might have affected things. Excellent. I'm going to go um, online for the next question as well. Um, another anonymous. Good evening to you, anonymous. Um, what is the success rate of your predictions? Yes, yeah, so measuring accuracy is uh, something that we'd like to probably do even more quantitatively, quantitatively than we do already. So to a degree, we you know, do a kind of uh, actually check of going back over the last year and seeing how our scores kind of predicted exact things that maybe in certain countries we were forecasting. Um, but some of those things, as I was saying at the start, we're using this really quite generalized definition of instability. It can be social unrest, armed conflict. So for example, like we could look at Sri Lanka recently or Iran and say, well, you know, not necessarily a full regime change in Iran at least yet, but so next year, if these kind of protests kind of tail off without a regime change, does that constitute instability? Like where exactly is the line? So it's gonna be quite important in the future to, uh, to benchmark our different definitions and probably even pull apart that generalized definition of instability into different types of instability and that will help us kind of measure our accuracy a bit more quantitatively. Brilliant, thank you. Let's come into the room. I've got a question down here and then I'll come to you and then you. Hi, my name's Linda. I just wanted to ask about how this is actually used uh, to advise policymaking, and in particular, I noticed this is uh, you know, largely publicly available information that you've um, generated. How is this interface with classified information that you might hear, I mean, to the extent that you can say, but I'd be really curious to hear, you know, there's obviously a lot that the government gets from its other sources. How does that all come together? Thanks very much. So, um, so essentially, the first part uh, in terms of, um, yeah, the, uh, sorry, what was the first part again? I was kind of thinking about the second part. <laughs> I forgot what the first part was. I also forgot what the first part was. <laughs> How the policy that's it, yes. So um, policymakers 
A lot of the time it's used in a kind of uh, crisis management as an early warning of exactly you know, where places might be uh, looking in trouble. And that would then be informing decisions on like resource allocation and funding and people and those types of things. Uh, in terms of then inputting uh, uh, expertise or analysis from uh, kind of non-unclassified uh, sources, essentially a lot of the data we use, pretty much all the data we use, is from open sources. Um, so it's from places like the World Bank, the IMF, uh, the UN. Um, of course, then we speak to experts all over the place in uh, kind of public sector, in the private sector, uh, in academia as well, get their expert input. So exactly uh, who we're talking to, to some uh, degree, might uh, change on terms of like the classification levels of a conversation. But ultimately, there's, it's really kind of low classification stuff. As I say, a lot of the data is basically just taken from international data aggregators. Great, thank you. We had a question at the back. Hi, um, thanks very much. My name is Rosanna. I'm from the House of Lords Committee Office. I actually wanted to go sort of back one question where you talked about um, measuring basically the predictive accuracy of what you're talking about and benchmarking. And I was thinking actually another benchmark is other people that are doing similar things and how your scores compare to theirs. I was thinking particularly around private companies, you can see a lot of use cases around sort of like investment firms, insurers, political risk consultancies that I think are probably measuring similar things. So I was wondering, are you looking at what other people doing, are doing, comparing what you're coming out with and what they're coming out with? And I guess an extension of that question is, how novel are your methods compared to others that are out there? Just to jump in quickly as well, we've got a very similar question online, which is how your data differs in insight and ranking from, say, credit rating agencies, and should they be using your analysis? So, as I was saying earlier, we basically go and talk to as many people as we can uh, to get their expert insight, and indeed, kind of like uh, maybe BP or insurers, like people who basically kind of run similar exercises to us, as well as think tanks, um, we also speak to them. The methodology can differ to some degree. There is usually this kind of blending of the quantitative and qualitative together, most of the time because, you know, if you go to your customer with a kind of data black box and say, you know, this is what the results are, don't ask me why. Um, and, you know, if you're having conversations with analysts like that, a lot of the time, you know, they won't like it. They've got their own opinions of why these trends are driving in these certain directions. Um, so, yeah, we basically all kind of somewhat try and compare notes with many people as possible. In terms of then comparing as well and looking previously, it's kind of related to the accuracy question because what you're trying to do is tie your forecast or compare your forecast to empirical observations and not necessarily just other forecasts because the other forecasts themselves are just forecasts. So yeah, it's always when you're doing the accuracy bit, more important to instead of looking at your own stuff, look at the kind of what's gone on in the world recently. Yeah. Great. Thank you. We had a question here as well. Hi, I'm Teresa. I work for Global Council. Um, my question is, do you factor in cyber readiness, cybersecurity in a country, given that recently we've seen that lots of Eastern European nations have been attacked, their critical infrastructure has been attacked for helping Ukraine in its cyber warfare? Yeah, no, great question. So that, that's exactly right. So uh, the kind of digital space that countries exist in is becoming increasingly something that we're looking to measure and then their kind of vulnerability to that because, of course, yeah, we can see so much critical natural infrastructure might be vulnerable to cyber attack and that can have real on the ground effects on a country's 
uh, stability. So that's exactly right. And that, again, is something that uh, you kind of have to approach as well with expert judgment because it's not like that's completely uh, available data all over the place. Thank you. I'm going to go online for the next one. Uh, good evening to Sam from MedConfidential who asks, can you say a little bit more about the outputs of your process and whether such a process could be applied to assessing public health concerns within the UK? So in terms of the outputs, um, yeah, they are, you know, these kind of classic research outputs of sometimes kind of takes uh, report form or like a bit of written analysis here, but also conversations and presentations and briefings and these types of things. So it's essentially uh, whatever it takes to help inform policy decisions, uh, as we were talking about in one of the earlier questions. Um, and uh, so those are the main outputs. In terms of health in particular, um, I'd say that this is like a relatively general exercise and there is kind of more specialised health agencies that would be kind of influencing health policy on the day-to-day, -day, like the UK uh, uh, Health Security Agency is, is the main one for uh, producing health analysis. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to kind of go into a bit more of a use case in terms of what we did with COVID uh, if the question is uh, interested. Cool, thank you. Um, let's take a, a last quick question there. Hi there, that's uh, Ivan Istanko from Atkins. Uh, recalling your slide about uh, the food prices, you mentioned that you don't see the food prices easing until late 2023. But I'm curious about your opinion. How do you see the interest rate hiking cycle as well as a potential upcoming recession affecting these food prices as normally these two factors result in an economic slowdown, hence driving prices down? Yeah, so I mean, th those two things are going to essentially be intention as we've been seeing. Um, and I think one of the big things on in food prices is basically the war in Ukraine. That's, that's one big uh, part because Ukraine was kind of breadbasket of a lot of the world, especially a lot of developing countries. Um, but also there's been a lot of droughts recently as well. Uh, those kind of combined um, to really kind of push up food prices just outside of the markets. You know, it's just kind of an availability issue then. Um, so that's kind of two of the main drivers we're seeing that, that's kind of behind bit of that prediction. Great. Well, Alan, that was fantastic with slides and without. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>And again, thank you to those of you online who put some brilliant questions in that we didn't have time to get to. Um, we're now going to go online for our final speaker, and that is Donna, whose slides are already on the screen. So, uh, Donna, good evening, and over to you. Hi, good evening. Good evening, everybody. Um, it's, uh, it's really a pleasure to talk to you tonight about how we are um, at Ordnance Survey supporting environment and sustainability needs. And, um, and essentially, I'll be talking you through, you know, why Ordnance Survey is thinking about this space, what we're actually doing currently, and actually going to run you through some use cases as well in terms of the innovation and capability growth we are undertaking. But first, I really wanted to talk to you about why location is relevant to sustainability. And we've already seen tonight, actually, some, some real good use cases of map data. But ultimately, through all our research, we found that essentially you can't solve climate without monitoring nature, and you can't monitor nature without actually knowing its location. And, and equally, you can't help people live sustainable lives without understanding where the problems are and the opportunities to act are. So essentially, um, our understanding is beginning to evolve around um, that resilient societies need to have some really good trusted location data to help solve some of these core problems and to really enable us to adapt, monitor and hold governments or corporates or bad actors to account 
And, and essentially, if you think of the planet as being like um, a patient on life support, um, you know, we really need to do that really good monitoring and to make sure that the situation isn't getting worse and then that we can actually improve the health of, of the patient or the planet. And that's where location comes into this, because we need to know where to start putting those key interventions in to make the difference. So, so why should Ordnance Survey focus on sustainability? Well, because as we've already heard, climate change is the greatest challenge of our time. And actually data is actually the heart of enabling solutions to, to actually sort of solve some of these challenges. So we at Ordnance Survey really believe that we can support the creation of some of these core foundational data sets and services to actually help meet some of these core emergent market needs. And, and ultimately, who cares about all this stuff? Well, actually, everybody does and everybody should. But actually, the key actors we're working with at the moment are around supply chains, um, green financing initiatives and, of course, government needs. So what does actually Ordnance Survey do currently? Well, we have um, over 20,000 daily updates to our database in um, Great Britain, and that's for every landscape feature, which is around about 500 million. Um, features within the database. And we have 230 surveyors actually out in the field collecting a lot of that data, but we also use um, UAVs, um, unmanned aerial vehicles, um, and we also have aircraft that take over 120,000 aerial images every year. And within that, we also have a thing called OSNet, which is actually um, a network of 110 GNSS receivers, which means we can do that really to a high degree of accuracy. So this is really the, the, the foundation of all the mapping within um, Great Britain. But what we're also exploring now is actually how we can actually um, you know bring on board earth observation we've already heard from meta tonight that they're actually using um, earth observation data in some of their core um, product services and some of the key advantages that we see in using these data sets are, are actually an improvement in currency of the data that we can supply our customers at the moment because we use aerial imagery we tend to have an update program of around about three years but actually if we start using earth observation data we can actually improve that currency through either a five-day um, update program if we were to use the, the open uh, Sentinel data, um, which is from the ESA program. Um, or if we were to use the commercial satellites so, such as Planet, um, you know, you can have an update program of up to 12 times a day. So that's really a massive improvement on some of the currency that we currently provide. And again, with these new um, um, technologies, we can actually um, do a lot more um, in-depth um, change analytics. But also we can use the multispectral um, capability of these satellites. So, so at the moment with the Aerial imagery, we tend to use um, red, green and blue and near infrared to help us with our mapping. But actually, with the multispectral capabilities of satellites, we can really now look at um, developing new um, novel algorithms and actually identify new features, but also provide additional monitoring capabilities such as um, habitat change. So it's been really important journey for us, actually, over the last um, year or so to really understand what we could potentially be doing in this space and, uh, and one of these projects we've been trying to understand is how we can actually really help the challenge for restoring nature. Um, so last year at COP um, we demonstrated with a, a series of partners actually how we can potentially monitor peatlands from space um, and this was um, a collaborative exercise from, from academia all the way through to um, um, people like the National Centre for Earth Observation to take down some of these core data sets from um, the satellites to then understand how we can create a peatland index that indicates the health of the peatland. Um, so you can see here um, um, an image which um, in indicates where the peatland um, needs restoration and where it doesn't need restoration. So the air is in dark purple 
are actually where the peatland um, is, is in a poor state. The areas highlighted um, in red are really um, areas that have been better protected. So these are triple SI, so sites of special scientific interest. And you can see actually that they are in the yellow band and actually they are actually in better condition than the rest of the agricultural land that's shown. And the important thing here is actually it's demonstrating actually how we really need to um, pull these insights into the hand of the end users. And the important um, element of this is actually having the map with it as well. So the map provides the context which means the non-expert user can actually um, access the insights too. And that was what was really important about this, is how can we get the, the insights we can derive from all these new assets out to somebody who's not an earth observation expert and who also is not a geospatial expert. So somebody who, who just really needs to understand from that visualization point of view, how they can start targeting their interventions. And some of the other projects we've been looking at as well is around how can we really support that resilience question? So, um, so one of the projects we did with the UK Space Agency um, earlier this year was looking at the, the heat data um, that's held in the archive at the National Centre for Earth Observation. And we wanted to do a test with our, um, our user base, um, which is obviously about 5,000 um, um, public sector and government bodies, to really understand how they can access this data, if they're even aware of this data, you know, is it of use to them? And, um, and the way that the data is held at the, the National Centre for Earth Observation is, is in a format that a lot of our end users can't actually use. So when we showed them this data, you know, it, it looks like a really nice abstract, um, but essentially they couldn't really understand how they could use it effectively and how they could use it for their, their own insights. But everything changed when we put it with a map. Um, so people can immediately start engaging. Um, they don't have to be an earth observation expert. They don't have to be a, a heat specialist. They can actually see where these heat um, um, hotspots are across the map and then they can start doing their planning and intervention and resilience planning going forward. And this was a really big change for our customers to really start understanding how they can engage with this data. And another example where we were working with the Department for Education is really to sort of understand where they can actually start putting in their resilience plans for schools. You can see here in the image, um, it, the, the, the field in front of the school is actually nice and green. But actually, when you look at it in terms of the, the thermal emissions, actually it is a multi-use games area and it's an artificial pitch, which has actually got a higher heat threshold compared to the rest of the land. So it enables the DfE to start understanding how they can start putting resilience plans in for, for their schools. So ultimately, what we're trying to do here is really understand, you know, how we can actually start, you know, pulling together our knowledge around location to help support things like the global glow goals, but actually how we can really drive that local impact. Um, so we've been working, for example, um, in Lusaka to use automatic feature extraction capabilities to start understanding where informal settlements are so they can start acting um, upon that. Um, we're using our um, ability to really understand what's going on in, the, in um, Great Britain to start identifying where all the green green infrastructure is and also to enable better planning facilities for the greening and bluey of cities to cool it down. Um, we're trying to work with um, some of these more novel sensors to really understand how we can start deploying these across the UK as well in terms of, for example, understanding, you know, the heat emissions from, from buildings so we can start targeting interventions there. And again, we're looking at how we can really support um, things like carbon sequestration and understanding, you know, how we can actually start identifying these core um, um, greenhouse emission site types that we can then put, um, you know, sequestration figures against. 
And finally, really, one of the things I really wanted to just, just talk about is some of these things are actually on a global scale as well. So how can we use our location knowledge to really drive forward some of these things, um, and particularly transparency within supply chains? So we're working with global partners on, um, on this particular problem, and we're trying to create a verification system for asset location, which means that it can be used as an identifier on smart contracting to really um, push forward some of these core um, challenges to reduce the impact in things like deforestation and really driving forward um, the change and environmental monitoring that is necessary. So I think that's my eight minutes up. Um, so thanks so much for listening and I'm open for any questions. Thank you very much, Donna. Uh, while your slides disappear, just a reminder to everyone online, not that you need it because there have been lots of questions coming in tonight, uh, please do use the Slido and go to bit.ly slash slidodb35 if you're not already on the Slido. Hello Donna, we can see you. Welcome, welcome to the Institute. <laughs> Hello everybody. <laughs> um, I'm going to go to the room uh, for the first set of questions this time, so we've got one right here to start with. Hi. Um, thank you for your thank you for your time. Um, I was wondering. I know you're involved in the government's geospatial strategy, um, and in context of that, how much explanatory work do you need to do to like bring all the data to solutions across governments for different departments? Um, do you think the awareness is there, or do you think there has to be a lot of more training and and awareness raising? I think that's a really excellent um, question, and um, and, I, and to be frank, I think we need to do an awful lot more. Um, I think you know um, part of the problem is that people still see us as as a map, as a base map, and I think there's not as much an awareness in terms of what actually location data can really do to drive forward some of the key insights that are necessary for 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 not only department working but actually right across government too. So I think there's a lot of um, um, sort of socialization, if you like, of some of the capabilities that we're beginning to evolve in ordnance area. But actually, even at that most basic fundamental level, we need to really upskill people in terms of geospatial analysis and use of the data. And, and to be frank, I think, you know, we haven't always made that easy for people. Um, I think we can make it a lot easier in terms of the access. And that's where things like the OS Data Hub comes in, because it's an API feed directly into um, the end user system um, that needs to use the geospatial data. So we're, we're working on improving these sort of accessibilities for that basic um, data infrastructure that's necessary to, to drive these insights forward. Excellent. Thank you. I'm going to stay in the room for the next question. So hands up if you'd like to put something to Donna. Otherwise, I'm going to have to ask when nobody wants that. Everybody wants a beer, I think. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to ask a sort of related follow-up question, which is you were sort of talking about the importance of helping users understand how to use the data. What, what sort of level of user testing and user research do you do to understand the best ways of doing that? Oh, my goodness. Um, we seem to do um, research to death. <laughs> Um, so we do a lot of um, research with our customer base, really sort of getting in depth with, um, you know, how they want to use the data, etc. And that's why things like um, the Data Hub have, have come into being, because it's, again, it's that, that making it easier. And we've got the National Geospatial Database coming out um, next year, which again enables people to just pick and choose um, the data sets they're interested in, rather than taking the whole um, um, topology layer, for example, the whole map. Um, they can just pick like unwant buildings or, you know, I'm interested in infrastructure or roads, etc. They can choose and select 
what actually they need. So, so again, we are trying to make it easier for people to access that data. Um, but again, going up and beyond that, you know, where we can actually then start pulling across other insights that are useful for our customer base. That's the next step that we need to go to. Great, thank you. Um, I've got a question from Anonymous online, which is how sustainable will data derive from Copernicus or commercial EO, for example, Planet B, if the UK loses access to the former or decides it can't afford the latter? And are there any easy answers? <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah, that's a really interesting question. There are no real easy answers yet. Um, Obviously, it's something that's being explored um, intensively with the UK Space Agency, but ultimately the Copernicus system is um, is open. OK, so we could, there are certain things which will be closed off if we don't get the um, access through the challenges we would suggest through the Brexit um, arrangements. But most of the data is still going to be open, so we will access all those anyway. Planet data is expensive, but actually we as Ordnance Survey understand the value of some of these commercial um, data sets. So, so long as the commercial model stacks up and actually we can make the business model work, then actually we can pay for those services. So, so again, it's not necessarily reliant on the government dealing with the contract. If we can make the commercial model work, we as Ordnance Survey can actually carry that forward. Great, thank you. Um, I'll come to the room for questions. We've got one there. Do you deploy your own sensors to gather data or you buy from a variety of agencies? Uh, that's an interesting question, actually. So um, so we do, we buy it from the supply chain. So we buy it from other agencies, but we have been exploring um, sensor capability um, development. Um, um, so, for example, um, one of the things we've been looking at is hyperspectral. Um, so we've been evolving a hyperspectral sensor with um, uh, one of the um, universities in Australia to sort of test out whether or not that actually that can be deployed on um, high altitude pseudo satellites or HAPS as they call it um, to, to improve some of the data um, um, insights and um, update programs that we're looking at going forward. Great, thank you. Um, I'll stick in the room for the next question. Uh, we've got one from Carlos down front. Thank you. Uh, fascinating presentation. <clears throat> I have a quick question. So m many of the research that you do is highly technical. Um, the methodology that you use is highly technical. How do you close uh, that gap between you and decision makers or um, the users of the data when it comes to explaining the methodologies, the data that you collect and so for policy making or decision making? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I'm sure you come across the same problems that we do <laughs> in terms of that translation gap. But again, you know, I think from, from our point of view, it's, it's making sure that people can, can really associate with the data. So it's that visualisation um, that's really, really important. So when we talk about things like Earth observation capabilities, you know, the, the satellite, the spectrum and stuff like that, we don't need to tell that to the end user, really. Um, that tends to be for the specialist user, but actually when, when we're talking to um, non-specialist, even non-geospatial specialists, you know, we just, you know, we just say, you know, look at the map. You know, you can actually see the insights from the map and that's generally how people mostly access the, the information. You know, the first thing people do when they look at a map is try and find their own house, don't they? Um, so, you know, they, they try and see how that relates to them in their world. And that's how we need to translate it. We, don't, we need to sort of almost hide the science if you like, so long as they know it's there and it's been done well. And that's kind of um, how we've been seeing our position, actually, with, when we're working with multinationals. They understand we can do the quality. So they're not challenging that. It's, it's actually how can we solve their problem for them? And, and that's where we need to really get to, making sure people can see that we can give them the answers to their to their problems or support them in terms of those insights. 
but it's a real challenge. <laughs> which leads us on beautifully to a question from Jonathan online, which is how might local authorities, many of whom have declared climate emergencies and are prioritising efforts for change, use this analysis? Yeah, that, that game's a really interesting question and it's uh, something that we're really passionate about actually is getting people the access to the data. So we're looking at how we can actually um, enable people to access information in ways that they can use it effectively. Um, so we're trying to work with um, the National um, Centre for Earth Observation to enable that connection through to enable local authorities to use that data in ways that they can understand. But also how can we broaden that out to other climate services as well, you know, helping people to understand rolling forward what is a likely climate impact going to be and therefore how then can they adjust and adapt. But also importantly, monitoring it going through as well. So if when you, you look at your policies, are your policies making things go in the right direction? And that's quite important as well. OK, so we need to work on how we can actually support all of those decision making in a very simple way and actually from the local authority all the way through to government. Brilliant. Thank you. One sentence question from somebody in the room. We've got time. Got one there. One sentence. Uh, Paul Shepley, IFG. Um, how do you handle the temporal aspect of spatial data and the visualization that's attached with that? Yeah, that well, that's interesting. So the um, so the temporal aspect of it, obviously, we, at the moment, we take snapshots of the map, so we can roll it back from you know through history. I mean, we've been going since 1791, so so we've got a lot of data. <laughs> um, but um, but the the temporal aspect, we'd obviously have to be really careful, not only in terms of how that marries up with um, the current baselines and making sure people have the right baseline to monitor against, um, but also in terms of how we then, you know, ensure that consistency of approach. And I think also in terms of um, making sure that people have the confidence in what they're seeing too is, is, a, is another challenge um, from that regard. So we need to make sure that we've got the appropriate timestamps, the appropriate um, um, usage of the data and actually the confidence levels to make sure that people are using it in appropriate fashions. I'm not sure that totally answers your question because it depends, the temporal side depends on your use case ultimately as to how much you want to do. But certainly for some of these um, nature-based restoration projects, we're looking at annual um, um, updates and monitoring programmes, um, you know, particularly from a baseline. Well, Donna, thank you very much indeed. Uh, before I release those of you in the building to the reception afterwards, um, a few quick parish notices. First of all, um, the next Data Bytes will be on Wednesday the 7th of December, our last one of 2022. Please do come along to that and check out the archive uh, of our previous 34 events on the IFG website. Uh, the IFG website is also where you'll find details of lots of events coming up on everything from reforming public appointments, that's got a stellar cast list tomorrow, ensuring value for money from public spending, reforming the UK human rights regime, setting up new public bodies, and at some point in the next few months as well, an in conversation with the Information Commissioner, which if you're here at Databytes, I suspect you may have some interest in. Um, all that remains for me to say are three very big thank yous. First of all, to you, our audience, um, for a fantastic turnout and fantastic questions online and offline tonight. A huge thank you to Meta. As I said, without our sponsors, we don't get to keep running Databytes. So a huge thank you to Meta for supporting tonight. And uh, please do join me in a round of applause for them. And also, of course, our four brilliant speakers this evening. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>